That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. 30 for 30 podcasts and The Undefeated present The King of Crenshaw. This four-part series examines how Nipsey Hussle's life, death, and legacy impacted the sports world, particularly the NBA. Here, DeMar DeRozan, Isaiah Thomas, and DeMarcus Cousins, among others, explore the realities of life as a black man in America, Nipsey's dedication to South L.A., and his community, and how Nipsey inspired millions. The marathon continues. The King of Crenshaw. Listen now on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a game, someone's betting on it. Stream season two of Better Days, the Mike Greenberg-hosted series that brings the true stories of unforgettable gambling adventures to life. Starting this Thursday, all episodes are now streaming only on ESPN. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Mallory Wegman, and my dilemma is twofold. I would say first, it is the the desire to see greater disability representation in our society and also the exciting but yet pressure that comes with the lead up going into a games well first the excitement of the lead up to the paralympics sounds like both a dilemma and a gift so obviously stressful but you need that energy and tension to to get your brain and body in competition mode and get ready to crush it out there so i think you've got that part handled As for greater disability representation, I I had Paralympic legend Tatiana McFadden on the podcast last year, and she talked about the same fight, and and she talked about how she really considers her job to be as much about advocating for awareness and rights and opportunities for people with disabilities as much as it is the actual wheelchair racing and winning that gives her a platform to educate people. And that's a lot, uh, to not only be the very best at your sport, but also be an ambassador for change and have activism be such a huge role. Um, One good development, I would say, in recent years has been what feels like a much greater acceptance of, representation of, and conversations about differences of all kinds. So gender identity, sexuality, disability, mental health, things that used to be considered taboo or even wrong are so much better understood, nurtured, and fostered now. Uh, So I I don't have the answer to your dilemma about how to, in in the everyday, um, make the great strides necessary for disability representation. But I can say that people like you and Tatiana and Addie Barkin and all sorts of young disabled folks on TikTok, a couple that I've heard about, Brit, uh, at my elastic heart or uh, Jem Hubbard at Wheels No Heels that are making videos about their lives. You all are doing the most important thing, which is bringing awareness, specificity, putting a face to it, and compassion to the issues uh, while you're pushing for change. And I think that that's so important. And we're only going to see more of that. And it's going to extend to major policy changes and beyond. So keep at it. That's what she said. 
So I know we're all still celebrating superstars of the Tokyo Olympics and watching as they rake in the endorsements and do the talk show circuit and have parades in their hometowns with excited fans. All that celebration of their accomplishments in Tokyo is so fun to watch still. But the games are not over because today, August 24th, if you're listening on the day this podcast was released, the Paralympics are getting underway in Tokyo. There's going to be over 4,400 athletes from about 160 different countries and territories. 22 events, different categories in each of the events based on the athlete's particular impairment. So those fall broadly into three categories, physical, vision, or intellectual. Um, And there are so many people to root for. There are so many great stories to follow. Uh, Just one example, you might remember Melissa Stockwell, who was on this podcast with me as part of the ESPNW Summit this spring. Um, Her story got even more uh, difficult, complicated. Uh, She had a bike crash just a few months ago, training for Tokyo, had two fractured vertebrae, some other injuries, but she is well enough to be out in Tokyo, hoping to better that bronze finish in the triathlon at Rio in 2016. Um, And she will be the Team USA ceremonial flag bearer as well. So keep an eye out for Melissa. Uh, And one of her Team USA teammates, Mallory Wegman, is this week's podcast guest. Mallory is a three-time Paralympic swimmer, author of the new book, Limitless, released in March. She's an ESPY winner and a many times over world champion, medaled at the London Paralympic Games in 2012, came back from a serious injury to compete in Rio in 2016. She's held 34 American records, 15 world records, and now is getting ready for the Paralympics in Tokyo. Her first race will be uh, day three of this event. She plans to do six events in the Games. Uh, We talked about the medical incident that caused her paralysis, how she sort of rediscovered swimming after the incident, um, fell in love with it all over again. Um, That injury I mentioned that nearly ended her career that she fought back from to keep competing. Uh, Her new book, the work she's doing outside the pool, lots of stuff. She is such a bad and I know you guys are going to love this conversation. That's what she said. Super excited to talk to Mallory today. Uh, You guys are used to me having incredibly impressive people on this podcast, but as you heard in the bio there, just unbelievable accomplishments and I often find, Mallory, that people who have had some great adversity or challenge in their lives come through with a perspective that many others are not blessed with. And it feels as though from reading about you and looking into your book and a lot of the work that you do, you're similar. And and I can't wait to get into how your perspective has been shaped by your life. But I want to go way back to Egan, Minnesota, where you grew up. What kind of kid were you? Oh goodness. Growing up, I I was extremely chatty, but also a little shy. It depended on the the environment that I was in and when I was in the comfort of kind of my safety net, if you will, around friends and family. Um, my family always jokes I was always the last one at the dinner table because it took so long to finish a meal because I just kept talking. Um, but I had a great childhood. I have really fond memories. I'm the baby of three girls. I had two older sisters that I looked up to, and we have memories of piano lessons together and swimming, club swim meets together, and going on family vacations, camping through you know the Canadian Rockies and, and road trips and I, I loved childhood. I, I feel like I'm, I'm fortunate to have those fond memories. And you were into sports from a young age, especially swimming. Did you do other sports or was it always focused on swimming? You know, I have memories of playing soccer back when I feel like everybody gets thrown into soccer, except for the fact that I, 
I was definitely the kid that just like sat and picked dandelions. I don't know if I ever actually played soccer. <laughs> I probably chatted. I was definitely in it for the orange slices at the end of a game and the juice boxes. Um, but no, I, I got into the sport of swimming when I was seven years old. And that was kind of just the path I took. I fell in love with it. And it's very much a your own sport if you want it to be. And so I, I kind of kept down that track. Not just year round, but all day. Actually, both of my prom dates were swimmers. I don't know why. I think it's just they tend to be tall. Um, they tend to be tall, and I'm quite tall. So I think we gravitated toward each other. But the early mornings, after school, the chlorine hair, they both had bad hair for prom uh, or, you know, swimmers hair. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lifestyle that you learn even at seven, maybe not so much at seven, but what were your events um, in, in high school and, and did you have aspirations of college and Olympics and beyond? So in high school, my individual events were the 100 backstroke and the 200 IM. And I, I always was the swimmer that maybe wasn't the most talented on the team. I swam varsity all four years, but I never made it to state. Um, but I worked really hard and I had an extreme passion for the sport. I was fortunate to be named as captain my senior year by my, by my teammates and, and had a lot of fun doing that and kind of leading our team. But I never thought that swimming would continue for me purely because I wanted to go to a major university. I was wanting to go into journalism. So I was looking at various J schools across the country and I wasn't a D1 track swimmer. And so I kind of figured after high school, I was going to hang up my suit and it would be a part of my life in, in different ways at different stages, but not competitively. And so when I was paralyzed and, and I found my way back into the water and, and ultimately started this journey 13 years ago, um, it, uh, it was definitely unexpected in many ways, A, the paralysis, but also B, the turning to swimming at, at 18, 19 years old. And now being here at 32 and still doing it and three, you know, two games later on my way to my third. It's, it's incredible. And I love the fact that you had also family that helped you find that, that pool again. Um, let's go back to the paralysis. So you're 18 years old. Um, you had already gotten a few epidurals uh, for back pain. Um, and it was the third and final um, that went wrong. What is the cause or the what was the need for the epidurals in the first place? And what was there any ex expectation that this would be anything other than just routine epidural shots? You know, going in for my injections, I, I was receiving them because I had back pain following shingles. I, for whatever reason, got this weird luck of the draw and had shingles my senior year of high school. And it didn't fully go away. I was left with some pretty intense residual nerve pain. And so we started doing epidural injections to help with that residual pain. And I went in on January 21st, 2008 for what was to be my third and final injection in this series I was doing. And, you know, it was a day procedure. I had the day off from class. It was Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so we scheduled it that day, knowing it was just a quick, easy outpatient procedure. And i be home in the afternoon and back at class Tuesday morning and, and didn't think anything of it. And so when I was ultimately paralyzed due to complications during the procedure, you know, it was completely out of left field. I, I went in very healthy with the exception of, you know, I was having a little bit of pain, but, but that was about it. And 
And so to have that happen was, was, was really challenging. You know, I, I talk about it in context of, in many ways, it was my sudden moment of impact. And at the end of the day, every single one of us experiences sudden moments of impact and, and really moments because there's more than one that will happen in our lifetime. And, and they always come with, you know, no forewarning that that's, that's the kicker with sudden moments of impact. They're, they're kind of those moments in our lives that have the capability to change our trajectory, but the moments that we don't anticipate, if you will, they're not the things we plan and prepare for. And so that was January 21st, 2008 for me. I was two months before my 19th birthday and I had no idea what life in a wheelchair was going to look like. I had more questions than answers at that time. And, and there was a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty, but I also knew that I had the safety net of my community. And, and fortunately at that time in my life, in, in these circumstances, it was not my family's kind of first go with dealing with major life-changing moments. And so circumstances from my childhood gave me that understanding of the power of community and how much community can truly pull you through even the deepest of depths. And so that was really a, a pivotal aspect of my ability to go from being paralyzed on January 21st at 18 to finding the strength and courage from those around me to seemingly start picking up the pieces fairly quickly, just because I knew I had a choice in it. And that choice was going to set the trajectory for what the months and years to follow would bring. You, um, as a result of the injection, you were left paraplegic with loss of movement from your abdomen down. Was this an accident within the procedure and the doctor doing it? Was it a result of the shingles or something else within your body that coincided with the injection? Or do you, do they know what went wrong that day? It was definitely a result of the procedure. Um, there's still a lot of questions to that day. And there's been questions that have circled that day for 13 years. And, and I think for me, after my injury, that was the hardest part, right? When we go through these these moments of adversity, when we face trauma, we yearn for answers because we're seeking closure. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest things this journey has taught me is that oftentimes we, we don't get the closure we're seeking and we have to find a way to create it for ourselves. And, and through the process, when I was writing Limitless, it was really interesting because I went back to my journals and read my journals from early on in my injury when I was kind of grappling with all of those questions and yearning for those answers. And I, and I really realized through those pages that ultimately we have to find the strength within to create our own closure because it's tough. And, you know, 13 years later, even, even having those questions asked, it's that reminder that like, there's a lot that went on in the four walls of that room that day that I still don't have answers for. But yet every day since I've had to find a way to move forward with the realities of what that day brought to my life. And, and that can be challenging, but I think that's something we, we all battle to some extent when we face trauma. I don't, I don't know that we ever get all the answers. And even if we have some answers, there's always, not, always another one we want to know. And so there is something to be said about finding that strength and courage within to create that closure for yourself. So you can not move on because I don't think moving on is feasible, but you can move forward into where it is that you're going. 
Well, and it's interesting too, because I think there's probably arguments both ways for wanting to be able to point the finger or assign blame. And if somebody is at fault, then you can move on. Whereas some people would argue that if nobody's at fault, if it was impreventable, then that actually feels better than, right? And and you could argue both sides of it. So I'd imagine those conversations took up a lot of, of your mind as you're trying to grapple with this new reality. And how much of this do I need to fix or come to terms with? And how much do I need to just say, this is this is what I'm getting from that day and I can choose to to move forward or not. Um, and that's that's obviously such a personal thing, but also probably um, something you deal with with your family. And you mentioned that your family had already been through some things that perhaps prepared them for this sudden change, this moment of impact. Um, can you talk about those or maybe even just loosely why you think that they were able to help you so quickly say, okay, now what's next? What do we do with this reality? Yeah. So growing up, I, I'm one of three girls and, and my oldest sister went through some pretty um, severe health complications herself. And, and with that came some, you know, life and death circumstances that we, we battled as a family and in navigating through that and navigating through and, and being able to be on the fortunate end of still, you know, having her with us. And now all these years later, she's healthy and thriving. But at that time, as a as a high schooler, and for me, um, when she was in her early 20s, she was not. She was literally fighting for her life. And and that was uh, that was a really hard time for my family. And, and I think that gave us perspective of realizing, like, we had been in the shoes of getting the phone call. I had been in the shoes of going into a hospital room and being prepared to say my goodbyes and being fortunate to basically have our prayers answered and have her still with us months later. And, and so understanding quite literally that idea that it can always be worse. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it wasn't to minimize my paralysis, but it was just that understanding that while I was laying in the hospital and we were having these conversations, we weren't having conversations of if I was going to live or not. We were having conversations of if I would walk again and, and what would life look like and, and all of those. And those were really large conversations that carried a lot of weight. But at the end of the day, I was alive. And, and I, I had experienced going through that as a loved one with somebody as, as we helped rally around and give her strength to fight. And, and I think through that and through that journey, we went through as a family, I watched as my parents led us with an abundance of courage and faith and grace. And and I watched as my sister and I came together as we supported our other sister. And I watched as our our community, our swim community, our church community, my parents, coworkers, like how everybody banded together and created this, this net, if you will. And, and it really, it kept us safe during a really challenging time. And so I had seen that play out. My family had seen that play out. And so we knew that well, there were a lot of questions and well, we didn't have answers and well, it was scary. And it was all these things. We had the power of perspective to understand the strength in numbers and the strength that we had that was surrounding us. And we had gotten through it once before. We knew we would get through it again. Yeah, that perspective is so huge. And how do you acknowledge the trauma of what you're going through and then also choose gratitude and perspective to move forward with with what you, with what you have? So Three months after this, which still feels like such a tender time, your 
older sister found an article about a local Paralympic swimming trial at the University of Minnesota. And your family decides, let's go check it out. Let's go watch. And was it immediate that you thought to yourself, okay, I want back in on swimming and this is how I'm going to do it? Or did it take some time? You know, it was, it was pretty immediate. It was interesting. Because that day, I remember it was Saturday. It was the first Saturday in April of 2008. And I had only been home from the hospital just about a month at that time. And I was still learning how to maneuver in a wheelchair and how to kind of be independent in daily tasks. And it was snowing. And I I remember my oldest sister was home and she was reading the paper and she saw the, the trials for the Beijing Paralympic Games were being hosted at the University of Minnesota. And so at that point, we knew nothing about the Paralympic movement. So we went online and started looking and researching and learned all about it. And they kind of decided we should go that night. But I I was admittedly fighting against it. I I really wasn't up to getting ready, navigating through campus, getting through the snow. and, And everywhere I went, I still had memories of going there when I could walk. And it was like I just wasn't ready to face all of that. And so we finally decided Kristen and I would go together. My parents stayed home. And we went that night and I just remember the comfort I felt when I got to the doors of the aquatic center and I smelt the chlorine for the first time. And as silly as it sounds, it was one of those moments where everything else felt insignificant because at that moment in time, I was reminded through that simple familiar scent that not everything had changed. And the chlorine smelt the same way the chlorine smelt when it was in our laundry room as our suits were hanging to dry for the next day's practice. And when we would fill in for swim meets and go to training and, and there was comfort in that. And so when we got in, I leaned over the railing and, and I, I kind of was hesitant at first. I was a few feet away from the railing in the stands. And then once I kind of got a peek to the pool deck, I, I, I like rushed to the railing and leaned over really eagerly. And as I did that, I looked to a pool deck where I saw people that I saw myself in for the first time. And, and there was, there was power in that and power in seeing a path forward to a life that didn't need to be rooted around my January 21st, 2008 being the root of pity for everything to follow. And And I loved seeing individuals being celebrated for the very thing that everybody had wished away in my life for the past two and a half months, including myself. And so I talked with my sister that night and and kind of at one point I said, what if I could do that? Like, what if I could swim again? And we met a mom, one of one of the athletes who brought us onto the pool deck when finals were over that night. And I went on that pool deck and talked to one of the coaches there who coached locally and within 48 hours, I was back at that pool with my dad and getting wow. back in the water for the first time. And it's crazy because here we are 13 years later, and we just had trials for the Tokyo Games at that pool. Hmm. And, you know, I was getting ready for my final race the last night, the 50 meter freestyle. And as I was sitting there in the ready room, I looked up to that railing and I glanced over to lane one, which is where I got in the water for the first time. And the black line that trails that pool is where I, I basically fought to piece my life back together for two years after my injury. And, and I think that's ultimately for me, it's just my reminder of, well, swimming is so much a part of my passion. It's also the very thing that probably in many ways saved my life. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. To have that thing that mattered so much to you before the injury and for it to still be there in a slightly different way, but in a meaningful, competitive way, and to be surrounded by other people that were choosing something that um, to, to your point, celebrated your difference instead of pitying it is so huge. And as an athlete myself, I know how much pride comes with achievement and hard work and besting people, being competitive and putting it all out there. And to feel like you may have lost that because of the injury um, is more than just about the actual competition itself, but but about how people see you. And when you when you say the word pity, that makes it feel like that's very important to you to not have people see you that way. It is. I think it's um, a lot of this journey. It's been really interesting, whether it's through what I'm doing as an athlete on the field of play, whether it's through what I've done with Limitless as an author and, and being, you know, having that pride and seeing the image in full of myself on the cover, which is about something so much bigger than me being on the cover of a book, but about creating a path forward visually for other individuals to see themselves being celebrated. Um, through my career as a speaker to what my husband and I are doing with our production studio. And I think that all of those things feed to the same thing and kind of what I hit on at the beginning of this dilemma, if you will, in, in really wanting to, to do my part to make sure that our next generation doesn't have to ask what about me, because that was the first question I had when I came into society after my injury, I felt like every single place I looked, I didn't see individuals with disabilities being celebrated. I didn't look to the TV and see it in our media. I didn't see it in television programming or entertainment or or really anywhere. And and that was really hard. And that created a, this struggle with me in finding my identity of, of what was possible because everywhere I went, it felt as if, you know, people were sending well wishes that that I would you know, quote unquote, heal. And, and it's like, but, but society's version of healing for me after my paralysis was that I would get up and physically walk again, like nothing ever happened. And I think it's important to realize that healing comes in so many shapes and forms. And, and for me, I did heal after my paralysis. I healed emotionally and spiritually and mentally. And I am a fuller version of myself today than I've ever been in my life. And yes, I'm still paralyzed, but that doesn't make me broken. And, and I think that just comes to the root of, of these conversations within the disability community of changing the way society perceives disability mm-hmm. and, and understanding that, that I, as a woman, can be proud of the four wheels beneath me. I don't need to wish them away. 
And so much of that is just language, right? And we're already working through language that we've all become accustomed to, um, like confined to a wheelchair instead of uses a wheelchair or um, ways that we have internalized and need to now deprogram thoughts or expectations for people with disabilities and people um, who are able-bodied and, and how they interact and share things and work together instead of it also always feeling so siloed um, because that that inclusion is so much a part of, to your point, um, seeing yourself and seeing what's possible. Um, what's incredible, as I was reading about, you know, you go check out this trials, you decide to start swimming. And in the first six years of swimming post paralysis, you broke 34 American records, 15 world records, became a 12-time world champion, a two-time Paralympic medalist at the London Games, one gold and one bronze. And it was this, I mean, flurry of excellence. And I don't want to move past it entirely because that's incredibly exciting. But what you've talked about dealing with since then is is grittier and more interesting to me because that just seems like, okay, you're a badass. I know a lot of badasses. Like you tried this thing and you crushed it. And I mean, I'll, I'll ask a question about it. How awesome was it to win a gold medal at the Paralympics? You know, it was, and I appreciate that because I, I'm extremely proud of what I've done as an athlete, but I think I'm more proud of what I've done outside of the pool and, or, what it is that I've done in the pool that transcends medals and accolades. And so winning gold at the London 2012 games was an absolute dream. I mean, there's, there's really no words for it. I, I can tell you the exact date it happened, September 2nd, 2012. I remember all these seemingly insignificant moments of, of how I felt right before I dove in to seeing the feet of the woman in the lane next to me at the 25 meter mark and being in what turned out sixth place at the time to finishing and feeling my hand meet the wall to like the shock when I heard my name, literally when I still rewatched the race, I look up, I go back to the line, I shake my head because I'm like, there's no way. And then I look (laughs) up again and realize like, Oh my goodness. I just won Paralympic gold. Um, to seeing my family and teammates in the stands when I was atop the podium and, and you piece all that together. And for me, it was such a, it was such a symbol of, of the knowing and understanding that it's not the moments or circumstances that define who we are, but how we choose to show up and who we choose to be following. And, and winning gold in London was like my story coming full circle of being paralyzed in 2008 to being atop the Paralympic podium in 2012 and understanding that every day was a conscious choice that I made to not let January 21st, 2008 be my defining factor to the point that when I left London, I made the conscious choice over and over again to not let September 2nd, 2012 and my Paralympic gold be my defining factor. Hmm. And, and I think that there's just that understanding that who we choose to be and and what we do with our lives is so much bigger than these singular moments, whether they're good or bad highs or lows. And, and I'm, I'm beyond proud of that. And I would be lying if I didn't say I've been thinking about doing it again, since I got off the podium on September 2nd, 2012, which if you do the math is a really long time to be (laughs) fighting for a dream. Um, And I'm so excited for that for Tokyo, but but within that, there's there's been this whole journey of its own since the London Games and and one that's brought probably some of the darkest times of my life 
while also some of the greatest joys and meeting my husband and getting married and, and beginning this journey together. And so I think it's just that reminder that again, whether it's, you know, the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, those moments don't define who we are or what we'll become. It's how we choose to show up following that ultimately does. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, I'd like a word. What's your favorite word? My favorite word. All right, I'm a little biased. I'm going to have to go with limitless because that is the title of my book. Limitless. Perfect. Uh, Limit comes from uh, 1400s, meaning boundary or frontier from the old French. And it originally referred to territories, but then evolved in sort of the general sense of the word in the early 15th century. The colloquial sense of the limit being an extreme or the greatest degree imaginable uh, is from 1904. So, you know, like take it to the limit. Uh, Limit as a verb to set a limit or to restrict came around in the late 14th century. Uh, And I just love that that's the name of your book and that that's your favorite word. So appropriate. Limitless. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is... The word of the week comes from my mama, Nancy Spain, who's reading Thoreau's Walden in her Newbury Library book group. And the word is eudaimonia or eudaimonia. I heard it said different ways in different recordings. It's from the Greek, arrived in the English in 1856. And it's an abstract noun derived from the words eu, eu, meaning good or well, and daimon, spirit like demon kind of. So uh, uh, there's a dictionary of Greek philosophical terms called definitions, and it attributed this definition to Plato himself, but modern scholars believe it was probably written by his immediate followers in the academy. But here's how it defines eudaimonia. The good composed of all goods, an ability which suffices for living well, perfection in respect of virtue, resources sufficient for a living creature. In the work of Aristotle, Eudaimonia was used as the term for the highest human good, the only human good that's desirable for its own sake as an end in itself rather than for the sake of something else or as a means toward some other end. So it's the aim of a lot of practical philosophy, including ethics and political philosophy, the aim to consider and experience what it really is and how it can be achieved. So in a sentence. Former That's What She Said podcast guest, Dr. Lori Santos, did a two-part podcast on the Greeks and happiness for her Happiness Lab podcast, including an exploration of how a cornerstone of eudaimonia involves identifying and nurturing our noblest talents to bring ourselves joy. While another former That's What She Said podcast guest, Cal Newport, just wrote a New Yorker column about the pandemic's effects on eudaimonia and the workplace. More on that later in the pod. Now let's get back to the interview. So you you have this incredible Olympic debut after putting together all these these records. Um, and, and two years later, in 2014, you have a bad fall and you have permanent nerve damage to your arm. First of all, this is like, shouldn't even be a comparison that I make, but I tore my Achilles in college track and then I was trying to do my own laundry instead of asking for help. And I was like using a crutch to try to push something down the stairs. And then I fell down the stairs and I broke my other ankle, but I didn't really get to do anything because it was my hopping leg and the other one was still in the cast. And I was like, how in the world did I just take away the thing that was allowing me to like keep getting around and functioning? Like what's wrong with me? Like get it together, Spain, ask for help next time. How do you feel when you're like, 
what now I have to add this to my challenges and, and rehab this. And, and, you know, what's that moment like where you're like, I don't, I don't as positive as you seem to be about the challenges that come your way, that must be so daunting. That uh, to the point of your story was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back where I was just like, you just want to throw your hands up and be like, really? I've shown I can handle adversity. I can move through it. I can move beyond it. But do I really need to do this again? Because I'm getting tired. And and it was, I'll be honest, I, I had my moments of my pity party that time around. I would say following my arm injury, I struggled more than following my paralysis because I had fought with everything I had to get to that point. I had lived on my own, become independent, traveled the country, traveled the world. Like I had basically proven that like my wheelchair was, was a vehicle that helped aid me in everything that I wanted to do, not confine me. And so when this happened, it was really tough because in order to do all of those things, I relied on the strength of two strong arms. And when the fall initially happened in the early months, I really couldn't do anything. I was back to not driving because my, my car was adapted with hand controls, but I needed to steer with one arm and accelerate and brake with the other. And I didn't have the mobility to steer with my left arm because I didn't have the strength. And re redoing those things, it's not a small feat, right? And so, you know, I, I couldn't drive. I, I couldn't get dressed independently. I couldn't wheel my wheelchair. Like everything came crashing down with it. And that was really difficult on my psyche. I um, admittedly, I remember May of 2014, I was towards like the third week of the month. I was sitting in my parents' driveway with my now husband, then boyfriend. And I said to him, I said, I, I think it's time we have a serious conversation about retirement. And he knew how badly I wanted to continue my career. And he said, please just let me make a phone call before you start setting your mind on that. And he called my high school swim coach, Steve Van Dyne. He coached at Egan High School in the Twin Cities in Minnesota for years. He coached my two older sisters through high school swimming as well. And we had stayed in touch, but he hadn't coached me since I graduated. And he asked him, he said, you know, are you willing to help Mal rehab through this injury? We're, we're, we're kind of desperate right now. She's talking about retirement. And Steve said, let's do it. Let's meet at the pool and let's give it a go. And when I showed up, I could hardly make it through a length. I mean, we were swimming maybe 30 minutes, taking minute, two minute breaks at the wall and maybe two, three days a week. I could hardly move. Um, and we finally decided that we collectively as a group, were going to buy into this. And if we showed up every single day and gave it our all, regardless of what the outcome was at trials in 2016, we could at least rest on that. And, and that journey probably taught me more than any other stage of my career. And it, it wasn't easy. It was excruciating on days and, and fighting against that time, my body as, as we realized that it wasn't going to return back to what it once was. And I was dealing with now permanent nerve damage that, that cost me function that I really relied on. It was really difficult to see that stark contrast from being literally at the top of my career to now being torn down to the bottom and what it meant for my life. Um, but we ultimately made it to Rio. And, and I think that journey allowed me to realize that, you know, just as, as, as it's important to rise humbly 
And that was something I had to learn going into 2012 as I quickly kind of made my my way onto the scene of Paralympic swimming. It's equally as important, if not more important, to fall gracefully. And I had to figure out how to fall gracefully and, and show up knowing there's no chance of winning much of anything, but choosing that what it represented by showing up to the fight day in and day out was bigger than any accolade could be. It's so powerful. Yeah. The idea that the qualification that you needed to get to hit Rio, even if there weren't any medals waiting for you was an achievement equally, if not more impressive and meaningful to you and, and, and full of lessons than the relatively easier path of getting to gold the first time. Um, so you get married in 2016, and I saw beautiful pictures on your website of um, your walking down the aisle. There were pretty serious leg braces under that dress to help you and some friends to help, but walking down the aisle and having this incredible life-changing moment, and you're back on track, right? You're getting married. Now you're ready. You know, you've qualified again. What happens in 2017? Because now there's more surgeries and more issues to deal with as you want to keep swimming. Yeah. So we, we unfortunately realized about the, a month going into Rio that my arm injury was progressing and there wasn't really any time to do anything about it. So we just kind of crossed our fingers and held on tight and hoped that all would stay, stay as was and get me through Rio. And unfortunately my first race in Rio was the 400 meter freestyle. And at about the 150, 200 meter mark, kind of right there, in that, that halfway point, my arms started to go numb and I started losing control of, of my arm and was able to finish the race. But it was, it was a tinge of blue and it was cold when I got out. We realized I wasn't really circulating blood and I was having some pretty significant issues. And so all through the Rio games, that was our fight. Every time I chose to race and I had the hundred fly the next day and I was swimming seven events. I mean, it was just a daily grind to try to get my body to hold out. And we were able to, but we came home knowing that there was going to be some significant conversations after our wedding. So I trained in the fall to be able to walk down the aisle, which was amazing. But it, it was, um, we knew that we were going to be going into 2017 into some hard decisions. Was the arm injury something that could happen to anyone or was the difficulty in recovering and the progressive nature of it related at all to your paralysis? It's definitely something that could have happened to anyone. It's one of those injuries that's just like a really crummy luck of the draw of basically the perfect storm, if you will, right? Falling at the right angle with the right amount of, you know, force and weight. And and unfortunately, because I'm paralyzed, I don't have the muscles in my legs that are going to help brace me from falling. And so when I fall, it's like dunk tank style. Your body has no chance to kind of go into protective mode. You just fall. Um, so you fall at a pretty hard force and, and unfortunately it was the arm that caught me and, and kind of that, that perfect storm of the way in which I landed and the weight that came down on it. Um, and so after, after we got married, we, we canceled our honeymoon and we decided let's, we got to just figure this out. And in 2017, I had two pretty major surgeries. So I was out of the pool from a competition perspective from the Rio games through September of 2018 for a full two years. Whoa. And were, what were you saying? The R word again, the retirement word again? Oh no, this time, it no, was not like, this time. I proved that I could do it the first time. <laughs> like 
I was laying in the hospital bed. I mean, I was in Mayo after one of my surgeries for two weeks and every day I would just visualize the water. It was like, if I can't touch it, I'm going to just visualize it. And it was my place to escape to. And, and I think there was a piece of me where I found going into Rio, the, the power that, that love has to persevere. Right. And, and my love for the sport is really what pulled me through that. And now I, I had my husband by my side. We were married. We we still had this remarkable community. My coach was through that with me through all of it. You know, he he was a hundred percent bought in. So was his family. And so it was one of those things where it was like, let's see what's left in the tank. We proved we can do this fight once. Let's do it again. And and fortunately, we did because now we're sitting here. I'm getting ready for six events. I'm ranked first in the world in three of my six. I'm I'm. Top. bionic arm like the surgeries, <laughs> the surgeries worked um i read something on the website about um classification has that been the same for you throughout your career or does it change if there is a significant injury or surgery yeah so my classifications changed a bit over the years i i had a change going into the london 2012 games um and I was classed into a higher classification actually in London right before the start of the games. And then I raced in that classification all the way through 2019. And in 2019, once my body kind of stabilized out following my surgeries, um, unfortunately, part of what was done in my surgeries was there was actually muscles removed from, from kind of my chest and neck area to help kind of stop the progression, if you will, of what's been going on. Um, and so with that came a review of my classification and I was classed down into my previous class. And so the higher the class for people that don't understand it, I kind of compare it to the equivalent of weight classes in wrestling, if you will. And it's, it's not spot on, but it's probably the easiest way to understand it. If you just have no idea what we're talking about and the, the lower, the number, at least for swimming, every sport has a different kind of scale. Um, is for athletes that have more significant impairments, the higher the number, the the less significant the impairment is on, on an athlete's body. And so we range in the physical classes and swimming from one to 10. I was a seven the first four years of my career going into London. At the games, I got classed up to the eight class. I, I was in the eight classification all the way through 2019. And now I'm back down into the seven class. Um, which that system is really imperative to just creating, you know, evening out the, the, yeah, the field of sure. play and creating fairness in sport. And so it's really crucial. They, they get it right. And athletes are in the right classifications when they race. Otherwise you're kind of, you know, you're in really a really tough spot. So, so I feel really fortunate that, that that process has continued to advance over the years and they've really put a lot of effort into continuing to improve it. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited now going into Tokyo to be kind of, you know, my arm definitely didn't just magically heal. It, it is what it is, but I think my body has shown the power of just being adaptable. And, and it's remarkable that even with operating with less function in my left arm, I'm still probably stronger than I've ever been because different muscles are starting to recruit differently and, and we're finding ways to work around it and constantly pivoting, which is to me, the exciting part of just constantly being a learner and, and choosing to learn in your respective craft. 
Um, it, don't get too in depth in this because, again, for those who aren't you know aware of it, but I'm just curious: is there a lot of fighting within the sport for classification? Either people who think they were put in the wrong classification, people who don't think the opponents are in the right place. Is that prevalent there? Because I would imagine that like any other sport, competition drives a lot of people to, to be looking for an edge or trying to figure out if someone else is getting an unfair edge. You know, it's definitely, I would say in the Paralympic movement, the most complex part of our movement. And, and that can be challenging because I think it, it takes away from the power of the movement itself, right? It, it's kind of that cloud that gets cast over us at times. And, and there's definitely people that argue all sorts of different ways, but I think at the end of the day, and this at least was my, my stance on it, because I, I battled a, a pretty, a pretty hard reality in London. I went in prospect for the potential of racing nine events, seven individual. And if I was placed on both relays, two relays, and it could have yielded nine gold medals for me. And then I got moved into a higher class and, and I went through a, a really difficult time at the pinnacle of an athlete's career at the games themselves. But I think for me, I, I personally chose to realize that the movement is about something so much bigger than classification and that how I chose to the conversation earlier, how I chose to respond to that would ultimately define who I was and, and what I was capable of, not that actual moment in time. And, and I think as for anything, you see it across the board in sports, you see it across the board, really everywhere you turn, there's always something that you could argue is political in nature, or, you know, is kind of the dark cloud of that, of that industry. Um, but you can also choose to see beyond it. And, and for me, I, I believe wholeheartedly in the, the power of the Paralympic movement and the values that we have and the understanding that, you know, beyond medals, it's doing something that is, is changing lives and creating a path forward for our future generations in a way that, frankly, I, as a sports nut, believe only sport can do. Sport has the power to transcend the field of play and change the conversation in ways that not much else does and unite us in that conversation. And so it, it yes, the answer is yes, there is that, the but yes. I think it's complicated it's, you as, choose, as so many things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You can choose how you, uh, how you approach that. And so you, um, you are the oldest in your classification, or you were the oldest in your classification in every weekend in every race and the weekend of the trials. And it reminded me of this meme that I like very recently just shared. Um, you, I'm only 35. I have my whole life ahead of me. Sports broadcaster. Here comes the oldest player in the league. He's 32. A miracle. Uh, which is how I feel when I hear that you at 32 are on the older side of things. Um, that certainly was for the trials and not specifically for uh, Tokyo and the Olympic Games as a whole. But the games got delayed. Uh, so that's a year extra for you, old lady. Um, and in addition to having to keep training for another year with and keep that dream alive and make sure your body's in the right place a whole year later than you planned, you also deferred um, family planning and trying to have a baby. So as Tokyo approaches, how do you reconcile all of those decisions that you make because of the change to the games? And again, to your point, the trajectory of your life changing because of these sort of pivotal moments and decisions. You know, it, it is a really interesting conversation and one that I think <laughs> I laugh to because I see the, the old comments and it's like, 
man, I, I am technically in sports, you know, from that perspective, I'm, I'm on the older end, but the, the irony is I feel stronger than I did at 20. And, and maybe that's time. Maybe that's maturing as an athlete, as a competitor, you know, more experience. Um, but this past year it was, it was a tough decision, but at the same time, you know, my husband and I have been bought into this journey together from day one. And, and we, we really set our sights on Tokyo after Rio. And we, we made that choice together and we knew that I wanted to continue my career and he is as supportive as they come in that decision. And when the games were postponed, there was that moment of heartbreak of just, you know, March of 2020, I was at this point where I was so ready to be a mother and begin that journey with my husband. Um, And so I was at that stage where I'm like, oh my gosh, we're like, six, seven months from, from getting to that, that big, exciting chapter that we've been dreaming of since our wedding. Um, and so when the games were postponed, that was really tough, admittedly. Uh, it was, it was a struggle, but I also knew how much we had put into Tokyo. And I also knew how fortunate I was and am to do what I love to do and to be in a position to be able to do it. And so now when I get up and train every day, I'm reminded that this is an opportunity and I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I have chose to do this. And, and I'm also reminded that someday when we do have a family, I'm going to be able to share this journey. And my husband and I will be able to share this journey with our future kids. And, and hopefully it inspires and empowers them to remember that sometimes in order to see your dreams come to fruition, or even just have a shot at them in the first place, we have to make some really tough decisions. Um, and, and there's a lot of factors that go into making those decisions, but I'm really proud of the choices we've made and, and I'm excited for after Tokyo cause I'm really excited to start a family, but I'm also not done with my career after Tokyo. So I was going to say, yeah, uh... <laughs> but you also only have three years until the next Olympics. So it's faster to get to the next one. Yeah. And then, then you'll be real old and we'll all be that is... so inspired yeah. that you can, you know, get yourself <laughs> to the pool. We're kind of running out of time, but I have a couple quick ones. First, I want to know, how'd you meet your husband? So I met my husband through work. Um, He was actually my brand manager. And the story goes, we became close friends, fell in love, got engaged, and now we own the business together. Okay. Okay. You know, and dream just by the, yeah, just take over as bosses. Okay. That's the very, that's the very short answer to the, the, the love story, but, um, it's really fun. We get to do what we love side by side. We're, we're doing majority of our work is in the Paralympic movement and the disability community. And, and we're using our respective crafts to do our part to, to be a part of that change. And it's, it's extra special because it's where we met each other and fell in love. Yeah, I was going to ask how he's able to be so involved in your career and must have, you know, some nice bosses, but turns out you're the boss. And so uh, happy we're the to bosses together, bosses together, you get to let each other off the hook when you need to make some time to go to Tokyo or the Olympics or whatever. Um, yeah. I imagine also, and again, we're running out of time, but I have so many questions for you. Paralympics must have some pretty complicated rules because I know the Olympics, there's so much conversation about whether or not you can bring family, caregivers, etc. And with the Paralympics, people um, probably a, a lot of people would need very specific caregivers or support systems um, that wouldn't be addressed by the Olympic rules. It's pretty complicated, I would imagine, with COVID. 
It is. Uh, we have remarkable support through our team staff. So in a traditional games about COVID, while my husband would be there as a spectator, I would really have no access to him. Um, so we're pretty self-reliant on a, just being independent on our own, but then the team staff that surrounds us in the village. Um, so the challenge here is is pretty similar to that of the Olympics where family's not able to come, um, which means my husband won't be there. My coach is normally there as a spectator. He's not typically a part of our Team USA coaching staff. So most personal coaches aren't. Um, so he's there usually as a spectator with my parents and husband and family they all won't be there, which is the same, you know, in the Olympic space, which is tough. Um, but at the same time, as tough as it is, we're all reminded that we are extremely fortunate that these games are in fact happening yeah. and that we're at a point where we can have them. Okay, last question. Limitless. I wanted to talk more about the book, but now we'll just have to have everybody buy it instead of hearing about it from you. But um, I had Melissa Stockwell on the podcast before, who is a Paralympic uh, triathlete, and her book had just incredible lessons and, and many similar to you about, you know, we can't necessarily affect what happens to us, but we get to make all the choices about how we react to what happens to us. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I'm sure there are so many messages from the book and you've crystallized so many of them. And I could tell in the way you speak about the injury and everything else, how much you've really thought about and processed this probably in the writing of the book. Um, but is there one big takeaway for people that after they put that book down and they're done reading, you want them to take with them every day into their lives? The biggest part for me with Limitless is when I started writing it, I really anchored myself in why. Why was I writing the book? It wasn't just about telling my story and, and putting it on paper in a way that people could read through. I wanted to share my story and the lessons I learned through in a way that could empower others to honor their journey. And I think at the end of the day, that's the root of it, right? Limitless isn't a fluff statement. It, it's a way of being, it's a way of understanding that we all carry circumstances, but we are more. And when we can take space to honor our journey and, and create a space to be able to reflect and, and celebrate our survival while also not allowing our past circumstances and experiences to tether us to our past and allow us to kind of cut anchor and lean into our future, that's when we become limitless. And, and that at the end of it is, is really what I hope people pull from it is, you know, yes, these conversations of facing your fears and creating your own closure and the power of forgiveness. Um, but also just, just a space where as you read through, sure, there's great stories of experiences I've had, but, but more than that, my hope is that it, it empowers others to honor their journey so they can lean into their still unwritten futures and find their limitless potential within. I love that. Uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's 10 questions. It's a speed round. Number one, your current careers, because you have many, are canceled. What job do you do instead? Oh, I think I'd be a teacher. Okay. I like that. What What subject? I don't know. I don't know if I have one I'm so passionate about. I think maybe like an elementary school teacher. Nice. Okay. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, uh, gosh, probably after my arm injury. Really? More yeah. scared than the initial one? Mm, I think so. 
I was in a darker place after my arm injury. Right. Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day and obviously not swimming because you already were. What is it? Uh, not swimming? Come no, on. No, because you already were that. You were gold. All gold. right. Best All in right. The world. All right. Fine. Best in the world for one day. Oh, I would say what we're doing with our production studio. So either a director or executive producer. Awesome. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, sports, would you most like to be your best friend? Reese Witherspoon. Oh, she's amazing, isn't she? <laughs> I feel like I answer that for every time. So eventually, maybe someday she'll hear <laughs> an interview and be like, this girl just keeps talking about me. Who is she? <laughs> she liked a story that I did, and she tweeted about it and made an Instagram story about it. So I think we're already best friends, basically. Okay. I just have to like progress the relationship a little further. Yeah, that's fair. On it. That's a big accomplishment. Uh, yes, I felt so in the moment. Yes, and still. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Biggest, most meaningless pet peeve. Oh, when people talk with their mouth open, like eat with their mouth open, right? Yeah. Or like they talk with food in their mouth. Yeah, I can't do it. Not good. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Ooh. (laughs) Um, It was small, but there were three people present. I reported for NBC in Pyeongchang at the Paralympics and I butcher names left and right. And we had a Japanese mono skier come through the corral. We thought she spoke English. She did not. I also proceeded to completely butcher her last name. And because she didn't speak English, she basically just kind of like skied off from the interview. <laughs> Luckily we were not live. It was like day one. I had never been on <laughs> broadcast before. So I was interviewing every athlete that came oh, through no. as a practice. Uh, yeah. It, it's become a joke and everybody that was in our little our little four by four, it's bigger than that, but it feels like a four by four when you're in it now reminds me of it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Mm. Being on time. <laughs> One of my biggest pet peeves is being late because I feel like it's disrespectful to other people's time, but yet I'm horrible at being realistic with how many things can I fit in a day. And so I cram everything and it takes longer than 15 minutes to get places. So I'm Yeah, why did we decide like 15 late. minutes? We all why? we all just agreed on 15 minutes and nothing takes 15 minutes. Like you nothing could accidentally have 15. like an extra long bowel movement and that's just the entire <laughs> time you allotted yourself to get up and get out of the house. Like nothing I don't need to be so, so specific as if that often happens to me, but it does. I'm like I I was going to be on time, but I didn't account for this morning. That's a um, literally oh crap moment. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Uh, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Oh, I'm going to say Dave Matthews because my husband loves Dave Matthews. Look at how nice you are. That would be awesome too. And he's and good it would be amazing by himself or the whole band. He'd crush it. I'm actually going to see him in like one month to the oh. day. Very exciting. Exciting live yeah. events. I know. They do exist. Fact, fact. <laughs> uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, but the kicker is I don't believe in failures. Mm-hmm. That's why it's such I a hard think, question. <laughs> I think we fail, but I don't believe in failures. Um, I, but if I have to believe in, in failing, I would say 
getting <laughs> 11th at the Rio 2016 games in prelims and not making it to top eight going to finals in my gold medal event from London. That was heartbreak central, but I'm strong. But you learned from it. Exactly. That's why it's not a failure. It's only a failure if we don't learn from it. Uh, Number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Mm. Compassionate. Resilient. And thoughtful. Very good. I like those. And who should I have on this podcast? Bonus question. Who would be great to talk to from any industry? Doesn't matter what they do. Oh. Reese Witherspoon. Okay. I'm on it. (laughs) Can I answer twice with the same person? Absolutely. Really? It's because I'm looking out for you and you've gotten the you've gotten the repost. So like now you just need the full fledged. Right. My foot is in the door. So I need you to uh, just like push me to really go out and yeah, to create both of our dreams. That's yes. right. And then call you up next time we're hanging out and be like, oh, Mallory, so funny to run into you here. Just hanging with Reese. Um, casual Tuesday. That's right. Totes normal. Uh, nice to talk to you. Good luck. I can't wait to watch. I'm so excited to see how you do. And in the end, you've already done all the hard work. So what happens when you get there is just the cherry on top. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place to rant about something, rave about something, tell you what to read, watch, listen to. And this week, it's that New Yorker column that I referenced earlier in the podcast by Cal Newport. So a little backstory. When my mom sent me the word of the week suggestion, eudaimonia, she included a line in her email from a column that came up in the discussion in her book group. And the line was, quote, the quantitative nature of Thoreau's deconstruction of eudaimonia was radical and deserves more attention. So I Googled it. And I discovered that the column was by former guest Cal Newport, who I spoke to on this podcast about his book, Digital Minimalism. If you remember, we talked about how social media companies have sort of hacked our brains to get us to continually use their products and how the workforce in America struggles with focus because of our relationship with our phones being like companions almost. So not surprisingly, he's interested in writing about Americans' focus and ambition and workplace changing because of the pandemic. So in the column, it's called, Why Are So Many Knowledge Workers Quitting? He looks at the trend of workers, particularly knowledge workers, leaving their jobs and how it reminded him of his studies of Thoreau back in the day, the act of sort of stripping life down to only what's necessary or useful to happiness. It's really fascinating column. Here's a little bit of it. In early June, the Labor Department released a report that revealed a record 4 million Americans had quit their jobs in April alone, part of a phenomenon that news outlets called the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation is complicated. It affects different groups of workers in many different ways, and its explanations are myriad. Intertwined in this complexity, however, is the thread that unifies Stolberg, someone from earlier in the column, and the unexpected departure of employees from the mainly small to mid-sized knowledge work companies whose executives he coaches. These people are generally well-educated workers who are leaving their jobs not because the pandemic created obstacles to their employment, but at least in part because it nudged them to rethink the role of work in their lives altogether. Many are embracing career downsizing, voluntarily reducing their work hours to emphasize other aspects of life. 
Later in the column, he writes, Thoreau's goal was to calculate the specific cost of eliminating deprivation from his life. He wanted to establish a hard accounting of how much money was required at a minimum to achieve reasonable shelter, warmth, and food. This was the cost of survival. Work beyond this point was voluntary. Still later in the column, here's that line. The quantitative nature of Thoreau's deconstruction of eudaimonia was radical and deserves more attention. In our current moment, we should remember in particular the role of disruption in this intellectual journey. It's hard to account for the cost of voluntary work if you're tangled in a cultural context where everyone is getting and spending. Thoreau needed to retreat to a deliberate existence in which the voluntary was rendered obviously voluntary. Only then could he obtain the distance necessary to accurately account for those extra efforts. So basically, by putting himself in a tiny shack where nice blinds, fancy rugs, etc. were obviously voluntary, instead of trying to make those choices within the construct of a society where the buying and selling and having of things is constant and and, and surrounds you at every moment. Uh, he needed to do that in order to try to figure out what was truly optional and what was truly necessary. Anyway, it's a really fascinating read about the, how, how the pandemic sort of shifted the thinking and ambitions of many people. We'll see for how long. We'll see if it sticks around or if people will find themselves going back to the places they were pre-pandemic years from now when things have changed. But it's a good read. Again, Cal Newport for The New Yorker. It's called Why Are So Many Knowledge Workers Quitting? And... Since Mama Spain is always tying things back to the podcast, she also pointed out what I mentioned earlier, that Dr. Lori Santos, that amazing Yale professor of happiness that I had on before, has a two-part podcast about the Greeks and happiness, including a conversation about eudaimonia. And uh, so check that out, too. Why not? Lots of suggestions today. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review, please. It really helps. Give me five stars. Leave me a nice review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. 